position of attention! How do you say that last name? Guernsey, sir! <sighs> Suck in that gut! Pump out that chest! Grow a better beard. Yes, drill sergeant! And what's your name? My mama never gave me a name. Oh, well, your name is now too tall! Or too short. Whichever one works better. And how long have you been in the army? Too long, sir. How long has he been in the army? Too short, sir. Ah! What are you doing? Phone, coffee, glasses in my formation. What is wrong with you? Nothing, sir. Ah, come with me! Well, good morning and welcome to True Grace Church. I'm just a visitor, but I'm welcoming you here too. If you're joining us online, welcome to you in the room. Super glad to see you. It's my privilege to be here this morning. Uh, I just have to give a note of gratitude to both Pastor Peter and Pastor Jessica who brought me here this weekend. It's a privilege to stand on this stage and share with you. Uh, my name is Di, and that's short for Diana, but my friends call me Di, so please call me Di. Um, I have uh, a husband, Brandon. He's actually preaching at our home church in Mill Creek right now. And I have uh, four kids now because my daughter just got married this past summer. And then I have twin boys who are 22, and they're both graduating from college uh, this spring. So that was expensive is what I have to say about that. <laughs> um, Pastor Peter asked if I would just give you just a brief little snapshot of who is this girl. I'm just a simple girl. I mean, I said this in the last service too. I've, I truly have nothing to give you in and of myself. It is only the Lord who allows uh, me to be here and just be a vessel for what he wants to deliver to you today. Um, I was born to a 15-year-old mom and a 17-year-old dad who had never been to church before. They dropped out of high school and did the really hard thing of getting married and becoming adults. They're still married today. Uh, they, again, had never been to church before. They just did the best they could to raise this little baby and get jobs and be adults. And uh, I grew up in Edmonds. And when I was five or six, this is the 70s, people. You just have to understand that. A man came to our door, a young man from a local church, and he said, hi, I'm from a local church, and I'm wondering if you have any kids here who would like to go to Sunday school. And my mom invited the stranger into our house and then pointed to me, her precious daughter, and said, would you like to go to Sunday school? And a uh, stranger is looking at me waiting for an answer, and I heard school and said yes. And so uh, I, that next Sunday morning, this bus showed up at the bottom of our driveway, and my mom put me on the bus with these people and waved goodbye, and I went to Sunday school for two months before she felt so guilty that she had no idea where I went every week. <laughs> so she got in the car and followed the bus to church, and that's where both my mom and I found Jesus. And uh, I'm just here, uh, nothing special, just to share God's word with you. I love God's word, and so I'm going to share with you today. Pastor Peter asked me to share on the very simple topic of forgiveness. <laughs> I think it's because he did not want to have to share on this topic. And sometimes it's good to have a different voice on this topic. It's a topic we can all relate to. If you are a parent, you probably know how to forgive. Any parents in the house? Oh, boy. Okay. These are people who are familiar. In fact, if you're married, you have lots of opportunities to learn to forgive. In fact, if you're a sibling, and we're all kids of parents, 
We've all had many, if you're a boss or you're an employee, I guess if you're anybody with human interaction, you either have started to figure out how to forgive or you're sitting here today with just a boatload of unforgiveness. And if that is the case, this message is for you. Before we turn to our Bibles, I just have to give a bit of a disclaimer. Forgiveness is a weighty complicated topic. It's not just a topic. It is something deeply embedded in us, this struggle to forgive. And some here are struggling to forgive something that may not be simple for you, but it could, it could be something like a, a co-worker has gossiped about you and you're struggling to forgive, or a neighbor has tarnished your reputation somehow and you're struggling to forgive. But I realize on the other end of the spectrum, in a room this size, there are people who have been deeply, deeply wounded. In a room this size, there are those who have been abused. There are those in a room this size who have experienced betrayal in their marriage. In a room like this, there are those who have lost a loved one and they can point to someone else whose fault it is. Some in this room have experienced sexual assault or violence that has resulted in the loss of innocence. And I, I have nothing to give you but the Lord. And he has something to say on this topic, and we'll look there in a moment. But I am not, please don't hear me say it's simple to forgive. And, and please just give me the grace that I'm not going to lump you all into the same category and say, just do it. And maybe you're thinking, like, who is this girl that they brought here who dares to say I should forgive when she has no idea, and I don't. I have no idea. And to you, the topic of forgiveness is quite truly offensive, scandalous, maybe even. And yet the Lord has instruction for us. So we have God's word. It's where we will look for guidance today. I'm going to ask you to turn to a very familiar passage of scripture. It's Matthew 18. If you have your paper Bible, I'm going to ask you to open up your paper Bible. If you have an electronic Bible, you can turn there, Matthew 18. And of course, we have uh, the verses will be on the screen for us to follow along. But before we look into God's word, would you just bow your heads with me as we pray? God, this... We're about to maybe unearth or poke at a whole bunch of pain in this room. And I, I don't take that responsibility lightly, and I certainly need your help. We need your help. So as we look to your word and what you have to say about forgiving other people, I'm asking that you would go before any word that is spoken and already be touching moving, stirring hearts to respond. That's the goal here, is that we would respond to your direction. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to start in verse 21, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. There's nothing special entirely about that translation. I chose it because I think it's easy to follow along. And I'll point out some things that other translations have to say as we go. But if you look with me at Matthew 18, Verse 21, it says, Then Peter came to him, to Jesus, and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Should it be seven times? Should it be 
seven times. Now, being offended and sinned against today is probably quite similar to it was 2,000 years ago when Peter asked this question. Uh, the NIV actually says, how often should I forgive a brother who sins against me? And that can actually, that original word for brother can actually mean the literal brother, which would actually be kind of funny because then Peter would be saying, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive Andrew? He's right there. He just offended me again. Or it can be just brother in the generic sense, somebody that is close to you, a friend. And isn't it true that the people who are closest to us often have the greatest ability to hurt us? So Peter says, how often should I forgive someone? Should it be seven times? Have you ever wondered how Peter chose the number seven? I did. So I did some research. And as I was studying, I realized, as I was digging, that there was a fair amount of discussion amongst rabbis, teachers of the law, in Jesus' day. And in this discussion, there's a lot of reference to the ancient Jewish oral tradition. In other words, what was the teaching that rabbis were doing before Jesus and during Jesus' time. And this ancient oral tradition suggested that you and I should forgive someone three times. That was the oral tradition. That was the teaching. Which then makes me wonder, like, what do you do when someone sins against you the fourth time? Like, you just, you get to let them have it, or you get to all of a sudden be super resentful, but this was the teaching in that time. There's also a little bit of debate here, because it's possible That Peter, knowing the oral tradition and sitting under this teaching, is saying, hey, Jesus, should I forgive someone seven times? And he's like patting himself on the back because, you know, the rabbis say three, and I'm going to over double that and say seven. Like, aren't you proud of me? Or it's possible that different rabbis had taken a different lane. Some were saying this number, some were saying this number. And Peter's asking a legitimate, like, who are we siding with on this issue. Regardless, Jesus blows this all away with his answer. Verse 22 tells us that Jesus replies, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Some translations say seven, 77 times. And so I wondered why there was some discrepancy there. So I actually looked that up. And in the original language, it actually just means countless So whether it's 70 times 7 or 77 is really irrelevant. Let's just go with the 70 times 7, because that made me ask more questions. Like 70 times 7, are we supposed to actually multiply that out to 490 times and we're keeping some tally marks somewhere? Like maybe you just got a note in your iPhone and like, well, you just got another tally mark there. We're up to 332. You've got a little bit of time left, but I mean, like, this is kind of ridiculous, actually. Wait, if you have children, though, it's not ridiculous because this just happened to you yesterday. <laughs> I love my children, I promise. In fact, my, my boys, uh, they're twins, like I mentioned, and they are complete opposites in every way. In fact, we actually, when they were in middle school, had to buy a different house because they had shared a bedroom and a womb. So they had only ever been together. And in middle school, I thought they might actually hurt each other extremely. And so we had to buy a different house so they could have their own rooms. I mean, they were at each other constantly. And like I mentioned, like people that are the closest to you are the ones who can not only harm you, but also know how to push all your buttons. And they knew how to button push. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's your kids' relationship. Maybe that's your relationship with your spouse. I hope not. But this is the case in my two boys. And so this is how I would punish them. (laughs) When they were really fighting, 
I would sit them on the couch next to each other and I would make them wrap their arms around each other and they had a hug for two solid minutes. <laughs> it usually ended up with like some noogies, some cracking up laughing and a punch on the shoulder. And I just counted that all good. But it makes me wonder like 490, what do we do when we get to 491? Game over? We need to just retaliate. We get to, there's, you know, there's no rules. You get to just do what you want. But honestly, this is not supposed to be quantitative. It's not actually about counting at all. And that's why the answer is count less. Like you're just supposed to forgive countless times. Why didn't Jesus just say countless? Why didn't he at least round up to 500? I mean, lots or say a million or something that's just completely uncountable. Well, so that actually has an answer too. So I did some digging here too, and I hope, <laughs> I hope you'll hang with me on this because there's a little bit of biblical history for you. Hang with me. The rabbis teach, so ancient Jewish rabbis and even modern rabbis teach that there's a reason that Jesus uses this weird little phrase 70 times 7. Now you're curious, right? Please say yes. Okay. It comes from Genesis chapter 4. And I'm going to just recap this for you, but you can just make a note. Go study Genesis chapter 4 later today. This is the story of Cain and Abel. This is a story about two brothers, just like I have in my home, two boys. They bring an offering to the Lord. Both of them do. And scripture tells us that Abel's offering was acceptable to the Lord. The Lord accepted that offering. And Cain's was not. God did not accept his offering. We are not told why, if he did something wrong or he had a bad attitude. There's all kinds of speculation there. We're just told his offering was not ex uh, accepted. Cain's response is anger. So angry that he ends up killing his brother Abel. Cain uh, is then forced to be punished by the Lord. The, Lord, the Lord's punishment for Cain is that he is going to wander. And Cain cries out that his punishment is too great, he can't possibly bear it, and that surely people are going to want to kill him. Which, I mean, that brings up more questions, because he was the first murderer. Like, who are all these murderers wandering around in the world at that time? But he's afraid that people are going to want to murder him. So God says that he will give, this is Genesis 4.15, that he will give a, quote, sevenfold punishment. It's the same wording there. Sevenfold, countless, punishment to anyone who might kill Cain. And then scripture says that God marks him so that everyone who sees him knows don't touch that guy. Okay, and then there's like this, this genealogy that comes to follow. So Cain has descendants. One of his descendants is a guy named Lamech. Lamech is the seventh from Adam. So we have this another seven that shows up in the story. And then in the middle of the genealogy is this strange little insertion of a story about this Lamech guy. And Lamech is not so great of a guy. Um, the story says that Lamech, who had two wives, which was not, not acceptable, but he had two wives, one day brags to his two wives that he has killed a boy who has hit him, struck him. Okay, so he references then, Cain, hang with me, Cain's protection. Okay, so this is Lamech. He's a descendant of Cain. He references this thing that must be known about Cain. And he says to his wives, if someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished 77 times or 70 times seven, countless. So we just have this verbiage popping up. Again, what does this have to do with all of this, Die? Well, let me tell you. The rabbis teach that Lamech, 
who has inflicted this extreme retribution by murdering a child who did something fairly, fairly not big of a deal by hitting him, that Lamech has now embodied what happens when an, an entire family line becomes evil. He's the embodiment of evil. And the rabbis tie this story to Jesus's story, to what Jesus says right here in Matthew 18. And what they teach is that Jesus is trying to teach Peter, a good Jewish boy who certainly knows Cain and Abel's story and Lamech's story because good Jewish boys have studied the Old Testament and they know these stories. All Jesus has to do is say this 70 times seven phrase. Peter's brain goes directly to this story. The rabbis teach that Jesus is telling Peter, you're going to have to out forgive evil. In a story where Cain and Abel, where a brother kills a brother and results in this utterly evil lineage that results in this utterly evil man, Jesus is instructing Peter, we have to be the opposite. Forgiving for even the greatest of violations by our brother. You with me? Okay. Let's look back at Matthew 18, because this is where Jesus then adds a parable. You're probably familiar with the fact that Jesus uses parables to teach and to illustrate his point. So he has an illustration here to drive home his point. Matthew 18, and we're going to look at 23 through 26. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, obviously. So his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned in order to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me, I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him, and he forgave his debt. Okay, a few things to note here so that we're all sort of on the same page. First of all, the New Living Translation uses the word millions of dollars. Millions is actually, I think, a too generic. We say millions all the time. So I think we've lost the understanding of how big millions is. So the Greek actually says that he owed 10,000 talents which is a unit of measurement that we are not familiar with. And you may have study notes in your Bible that give some more, shed some more light there. The NIV says he owed 10,000 bags of gold, which is still kind of hard for us to understand, but that's a lot. So here's a little bit of unit of money measurement history for you. A denarii was a coin that was worth one day's work. So it's your wages that you would make in one day was one denarii. A talent was how they measured or weighed precious metals. And it was the equivalent, one talent, of about 20 years worth of day's wages. 20 years worth of denarii, which is about 6,000 denarii for one talent. How many talents did this guy owe? Look back at your scripture. What do you owe? 10,000. So if you do that math, that could be around 164,000 
years of debt this man owed. Let's just change his name right now to Bill because he owed a lot of bills. Let's ask some questions about Bill. What is Bill doing with this money? What on earth is Bill dabbling in that he is this greatly in debt? Let's also ask, what on earth is wrong with his master, the king, that continues to lend money to the bottomless pit that is Bill? Does he not have an Excel spreadsheet that shows him how great the losses are and just say, hey, to the rest of his servants, hey, stop lending this guy money. He's a bottomless pit. How did he rack up this much debt? What is wrong with this business owner? Also, let's just point out that Bill asks for patience. He says, just be patient with me. I will certainly pay all of this back. And I think we can all just go, um, no, you're not. (laughs) You are certainly not able to pay all of this back. This is ridiculous. Also ridiculous is that his master releases him from the debt. He doesn't just say, great, take some time. He says, you don't even have to pay me back. (laughs) Wait, what? Who would do this? Who would look at the loss that that's going to be financially and say, don't worry about it? But it gets more impossible and ridiculous. Let's look at verses 28 through 34. So hang with me as I read this last little section to finish off this parable. Jesus says, when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Sound familiar? Be patient with me. I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor, Bill. But Bill wouldn't wait. He had this man arrested and put in prison until his debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. So they went to the king and they told him everything that had happened. And the king called in the man he had forgiven. He called in Bill. And he said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man, Bill, sent Bill to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. We're going to come back to that verse in a second here. But let's just look at what we just read. First of all, in verse 28, the original language says that the second servant owed a hundred denarii. So the New Testament translates that, a few thousand dollars, a hundred denarii, that's equivalent to about three months' wages. So the guy, Bill, potentially owes over a hundred thousand years of debt that he is forgiven. And now he's grabbing a guy that owes him three months' wages by the throat and demanding that repayment immediately. Let's call the second guy Fred because that was the only name I could think of that was close to freed because he should be freed from this debt. So we're going to call him Fred, like prophetically speaking, freedom into Fred. Uh, Fred, who owes three months' wages, begs for the more time to pay it back just as Bill himself did only moments ago. And yet Bill has become hard-hearted and callous And what feels unbelievable refuses to forgive and throws Fred into prison. Now we think, no way. 
Who would do this? Can I propose us? Because this story is us. It is about you and me. We're supposed to immediately see the illustration. I mean, if you're in this place and you know the Lord and Jesus is your Savior, the illustration is supposed to be obvious that you and I owed a debt we could not possibly ever repay. And when we asked for forgiveness, we were released of that debt, paid for by Jesus Christ by giving his own life. We're supposed to see that immediately. But let me just bring this to a personal level. Maybe you're, I, I know there is someone here that is saying, yeah, but die. I know I owe a great debt to the Lord. But the person who owes me, it's not just three months wages. It's big what is owed to me. And I, I fully understand, and in, in lots of ways I don't, I understand pain is complicated. I understand, at least in theory, that your pain is very real. And I am not suggesting it not be real. And I am not suggesting that your debt be minimalized. What is owed you by someone who has hurt you? I am not minimalizing that at all. And yet, we hold this story in front of us and we have to determine what will we do with this? What if the forgiveness of debt brings ruin to you? Let me explain. Debt that is forgiven has to go somewhere. Okay, just let that sink in for a second. If, if I owe you $10,000 and I can't pay you and you say, it's okay, Di, I, I'll release you from owing that to me. You paid the debt for me, right? The debt went somewhere. This master who was owed hundreds of thousands of years of finances, actual money, he took the loss of hundreds of thousands of years. Do you, do you understand? Somebody has to pay the debt. It either has to be paid by the person who's owed, who owes it, sorry, or it has to go back on the person who is owed the debt. But somebody will have to pay that loss. And the story ends with the king getting word that the servant that he just forgave this ridiculous debt has not shown that same forgiveness to another. So he throws Bill in prison to be tortured until he pays back his debt. Again, we're going to come back to that sentence. But before we do, let me say a few words about forgiveness. In fact, let me say a few words about what forgiveness is not. Um, some great work has been done on this topic of forgiveness by Reed Dent, and he's a professor at Truman State University. I'm going to give him the credit. This is his list that he's compiled that I've sort of crafted to deliver to you. He's done great work. Forgiveness is not. I'm going to list off a list of things here for you. Forgiveness is, first of all, not condoning. It is not condoning. When we forgive, it is not us saying what you did is okay. Forgiveness is not forgetting. We don't say, I forgive you, and then we pretend that it never happened. It still happened. Forgiveness is not pretending that there are no consequences 
for what has been done. Harm has been done. Forgiveness is not excusing. When we forgive, we don't say, it's okay, it's not your fault. It is, in many cases, that person's fault. Forgiveness is not accepting or allowing additional wounds. I actually had a line of people waiting to talk to me after the first service that, are saying, that were asking about that. How do I forgive but not line myself up to be wounded again? And this is a great place to just say, there's a difference between past hurt that needs forgiveness and hurt that's potentially ongoing. And you got to use wisdom there. There is a wisdom in some boundaries. And just because you forgive does not mean you allow additional wounds. It also does not mean that you can just jump back into a relationship. You do not have to have a relationship with someone who has wounded you. Just because you say, I forgive you, or in your heart say, I forgive you, does not mean you got to be close again. If this is a parent that has wounded you, you don't have to have the deep father-son bond. If there's potential for more hurt, you do not have to be in relationship. Forgiveness is also not fixing. It doesn't just fix everything that's broken. And forgiveness is also not reconciling. Just because you forgive, again, does not mean that relationship is just immediately restored. Um, Reed Dent, in his study on forgiveness, says that forgiveness is a summary of the charge. It's a reckoning. It's a confrontation. Forgiveness is confrontational. And then it is a release. It is a recognition of I know what you did, you also know what you did, and I am not going to expect that you repay me for what you did. It's accusatory. You did this. It was you. You did it. And then it's a release of the guilty party from their responsibility to pay for something that in most cases they just can't possibly repay. Uh, Example. so my husband, Brandon, comes from a family where his father and his father before him and his father before him that we know of experienced exactly what my husband, Brandon, experienced growing up, which was verbal and often physical abuse. And in their family pattern, dad picks one of his kids that takes the brunt of the frustration and the anger and the abuse And by the time that kid leaves home, and they leave home fast, when that kid leaves home, we just pretend like nothing ever happened. And that pretending actually perpetuates the cycle. And so when I was pregnant with our first child, Brandon had this moment of like, I don't want to become my dad. And if you're a parent, you've probably thought that or said that yourself, even if your parents were great. But he's, I don't want to. I don't want to perpetuate this cycle. I have to confront my dad. And I have to forgive him. And I did not want to be a part of this. I admit it. (laughs) I did not want to be a part of the confrontation that really represented generations of no confrontation and no talking about anything that was done wrong. And uh, I didn't have a choice. So I sat there. And so did Brandon's mom. And both of us wished we weren't there as Brandon started off. And his dad did not know why we were having this meeting. But he figured it out real fast. And Brandon started with, Dad, I forgive you. And he started on a list. Dad, I forgive you that when I was eight, 
you didn't come to any of my soccer games that season. And I forgive you for when I was nine and you said this to me. And I forgive you when I was 10, you did this. And I forgive you when we went on that family vacation to Disney World and all of us were miserable because you were doing this and saying this to me. And all the way up through, like, Dad, I forgive you in high school when you never came to anything that mattered to me. I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. And his dad sat there with no expression and no words until Brandon was done. And the final thing Brandon said was, Dad, I know that you want a relationship with me, and I have figured out how to live my life and not need you, but I will try relationship with you. I needed you to know that I forgive you for these things, and I needed you to know it for your own benefit. And his dad put his head down, and you don't know his dad, he's... He's a strong man. He's a proud man. He's not an emotional man. And the tears just started dropping in his lap. And the only sentence he said in the 20 minutes of sobbing was, how can, how can you forgive me when I can never forgive myself? And that, here's what you need to understand. That couple hours of conversation where Brandon confronted his dad, confronted the issues, and extended forgiveness did not repair them, and they were buddies going fishing together. It did not suddenly make all those years of pain go away. It did not suddenly make it all okay, but it did turn something. Well, first of all, I just really believe it broke something that had been carried down through generations in their family, but it began. It was the beginning of relationship, and I want you to hear me say it took years for them to build a relationship, years. And every time his dad would revert to one of his old ways of picking on him or Brandon would say, Dad, I'm going to need some space. (laughs) And they would just take a couple days. And together they have an incredible relationship. His dad is now, he's found Jesus. He's, you know, he's a transformed man. I can truly say he's been a great grandpa to my kids. But forgiveness is this confrontation to people that have caused us pain. And sometimes that's precisely what it requires. So what do we do with this? Well, first of all, we don't get to be cowards. We don't get to be cowards and say, I'm just a graceful person. Because I realize that probably 80% of you in this room, like your second greatest fear is confrontation. Your first greatest is public speaking. (laughs) We don't get to be cowards and cover that by saying, oh, I'm just a graceful person, or oh, it's in the past, or oh, we're just going to move, oh, it's not going to change anything. We really have a responsibility here to figure out how to walk out forgiveness. All right, so how do we respond to this? What do we do? I have two suggestions, and then I'm going to tie back to that verse. Are you ready? Number one, we must choose to see our own debt for what it is. It is something that we cannot repay. We must first see our own debt And the fact that we can never repay that debt. And Jesus took that debt upon himself and he paid the cost that we could never pay. Number two, we must choose, it's not a feeling, it's a choice, to extend forgiveness to others, refusing to hold grudges. Unforgiveness, refusing to hold it, refusing, refusing, refusing. And we must release the expectation of being repaid. I mean, this can be financial, but this is certainly emotional. 
This is certainly maybe the most difficult challenge we will face in Scripture is how to not hold a grudge. One last element here I want to bring to your attention. And it's the danger that comes with refusing to forgive. Look again at verse 34. Verse 34 says, Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. Now we read this quite naturally. Let's put Bill's name in there. We read this as the angry king sent Bill to be prison, to prison, sorry, to be tortured until Bill paid Bill's debt. That's how we naturally read it. You agree? Yeah, that's how we, I mean, if you've ever read this before, that's where your brain probably immediately went. But again, there's some fantastic study here. The Greek for the word for forgive, or sorry, paid, is actually better translated forgive. So that Greek word for paid lends more towards release, cancel, or forgive. Okay, so let's read it putting the more likely usage more likely translation of the word paid, and let's see if that sentence works. The angry king sent Bill to prison to be tortured until Bill forgave Bill's entire debt. Does that make sense? No, Bill wants to forgive Bill's entire debt. That makes no sense. Which then leads us to ask a very simple question. Who is the he and the him in this sentence? Let me read it for you how I think it is intended to be read. Then the angry king sent Bill to prison to be tortured until Bill forgave Fred's debt. I mean, that'll mess. (laughs) The parable seems to say, Bill, until you learn to forgive Fred, I'm going to make you pay. Which means Bill was sent to prison but simultaneously sent there holding the key to his own release. And that is something you and I relate to in more ways than we want to admit. Because truly, the person in prison where there is unforgiveness is mostly not the person who needs the forgiveness. They, they just live their life not even realizing the damage they've done a lot of times. The person that suffers is us. But we are in a prison holding the key. And the key is you and I making a choice to forgive. And again, this is not simple. And I I don't want to breeze through it like it is. But it is a simple challenge. We have the key to our own cell. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as we bring this to a response. Because I know in a room like this, some of you have walked through forgiveness, and you, can, you could honestly stand before God and say, I have extended forgiveness. Some of you are thinking, surely you're not asking me or challenging me to forgive this person. Again, some of you have experienced deep and painful wrongs. This is not direction from me, die. I'm going to get in my car and drive home this afternoon. But the Lord stays here challenging you with this, messing with you. Will you be someone who outforgives evil or harm or hurt? 
And that is your challenge. So if you're in this place and you would say, Die, I needed this challenge from the Lord. I am struggling to forgive. Deep pain has been done to me or I'm carrying wounds that I'm struggling to let go of. Would you pray for me? Would you raise your hand across this room? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Thank you. I'm going to ask everyone in this room if you'll stand to your feet with me so we can close in prayer. And let's do something really simple. Will you take your, one of your hands and just put it out in front of you and make a fist? I want you to imagine that what you're struggling to let go of is held in this fist. And again, I don't, I don't want to suggest that 30 minutes on the topic and you're good to go, you walk. But I do believe in the power of the Spirit of God to set you free if you will let go. And so we hold our hand like this, bow your heads with me, and I'm going to pray. And sometime during my prayer, I'm going to ask you to symbolically to open your hand. It's just, it's symbolic of what you're choosing in your heart, which is to let go. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we, we read your words. We saw your illustration. We looked at where it ties into uh, the law and into Jewish tradition and probably the depth of what you were teaching that we've never seen before. But here we are today and we, we hold pain in our hearts, in our lives, and we symbolically hold it in our fist. And for many of us, the most difficult thing you could ask us to do is to release someone, to cancel their debt to release them from the expectation that they owe us. They owe us an apology. They owe us repayment. They owe us anything. It doesn't make what was done to us right, but we're going to turn to you on this, and we are going to make a choice, and it's not based on our feelings. It's simply a choice to let go, to release that debt, to cancel to forgive. Forgiveness is the release of debt and the release of expectation of repayment. And tomorrow, it might be hard. We might want to clamp our hand on that thing again. We're asking for your help even now. And next week, or maybe at a family reunion, when we see somebody that has caused us great pain, it's going to be hard. And so we're asking you even now to help us let go and keep letting go. Help us. Give us the strength to not pick it up again. Help us to not pick up our pain and like pet it and feed it and treat it really well and keep it as a nice pet. Instead, allow us to let go of that thing that then imprisons us. You've given us the key. So we make a choice. With all the pain attached to it, we say, Jesus, we release it. Now fill the space where that thing was abiding inside of us with your love, with your grace, and with your power, we're asking in your name. And we say thank you and amen.